they're not tube fed kids. It's not the tube that comes first. It's the child that comes first. We're working with Sydney Children's Hospital to construct the world's first tube feeding friendly cafe. It's incredible. But small things will make really big differences here. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Imagine up to 30% of children experience feeding difficulties and as many as 1% of children are tube fed at some point. But tube feeding is an almost invisible yet vital issue in our health and food system. In this episode, I'm speaking with Nick Hopwood from the University of Technology, Sydney, for a seriously nourishing conversation that goes well beyond the delivery of nutrients. It's a conversation that's all about tube feeding and the heart-filled, groundbreaking work that he and colleagues from the Succeed program do. Welcome, Nick. I'm humbled and very excited to be speaking with you. Thanks so much for reaching out to share Succeed's story uh, with, with Nourishing Matters. Welcome. Thank you so much. We appreciate all the opportunities we have to raise the profile of tube feeding and to uh, share some of the work we've been doing and um, the fantastic things that the parents and families we've worked with do too. It's just such a great story. I love learning more about it. You're a professor of professional learning at UTS and co-convener of the LifeWide Learning and Education Research Group within the School of International Studies and Education. Such an interesting role and skill set um, that seems to me to really speak to the interdisciplinary approach and, and style of SUCCEED. SUCCEED, uh, for listeners, is the acronym for the Supporting Children with Complex Feeding Difficulties Initiative that is supported by the Early Life Determinants of Health Clinical Academic Group at Maradulu Budiaru. Nick, can you introduce and tell us all about what Succeed's mission is and what its activities are all about? Succeed is, like you said, an interdisciplinary project. It's shifted and evolved in its focus. We started life as a small team supported by Maradulu Budiaru Gamal or SPHERE, the Sydney Partnership for Health education research and enterprise which is um, across a number of universities and health settings and our initial mission was threefold one to um, find a way to fi- to figure out who is actually delivering kind of the primary care for in the system the kind of the the key caregivers and sites of health care for children who tube feed and to to start collecting robust systematic data about that Secondly, to um, fill some gaps in the information that's provided and available for parents who are at the beginning of a tube feeding journey, which we did by building a website. And thirdly, to start a process of understanding what the best healthcare practices look like for families with children who tube feed. And those are our three kind of the arms of our first research project. Since then, our mission has grown and our team has grown, uh, but that was where we started. And that was a pediatrician, Chris Elliott, a speech pathologist, Kadi Murabi, somebody from the Western Sydney University Business School, that's Anne Dadich, and myself were part of the core team. Right from day one, we always did things with and for parents. So we've always had a parent Uh, reference group and that's grown and some parents have now become part of our core team. Oh fantastic I was going to ask you who your colleagues and and who the community of participants involved in the initiative are but you've outlined that really well and another question I had was is this UTS specific Um, and clearly it's not so that that makes sense with Cardinal Health and um, the wonderful blend publication that you've just been featured in so thanks so much for that. So when did Succeed get underway and what's the outlook or time frame for what it's what it's planning to do going forward? I think we started probably formally in 2017. I think the conversations may have started a little bit before that, but our first grant was around then um, from the Early Life Determinants of Health Clinical Academic Group, which is part of that bigger Maradulu Budyari Gamal initiative. And that was to deliver on a two-year timeframe, the website, um, some of that empirical data collection around who was giving care for children who tube feed within the health system and the project on kind of brilliance in healthcare practices. And all those three things uh, we completed. Now we have a a sort of a a different horizon of some things that we're wanting to get going to become annual parts of what we do. 
And this is how we're shifting from only doing research to doing research as well as activism and also kind of provision of some things that wouldn't otherwise be happening that we've now learned are important. And we have um, longer term aims over five years or more in terms of the changes we'd like to see in the world and in the healthcare system. So from three quite defined projects that were to be delivered over two years, we now have kind of repeated things and a long-term vision and agenda. And stepping back a little, can I ask you personally, what drew you to the programme and how you got involved in it? What a wonderful question. A number of things. Um, as a researcher, I've, I've never really wanted to be a passive bystander in my relationship with the world. I'm very curious about lots of things in the world, particularly where learning is involved. This was a project that didn't just want to kind of take a picture of the world as it is. It was always using those pictures of the world with the intention of doing something to move away from the future that's given for families into a future that ought to be for families with children who tube feed. So that kind of active and activist component was really appealing to me. And it's been part of our ethos from the start. Also, as you mentioned before, the fact that it's a transdisciplinary study, it's really nice as somebody from education to be working with people who have expertise and skill sets that I don't have, but equally um, to be the person in the team that people come to to say, okay, so how do we understand the learning that's going on here? That's an incredibly kind of rewarding way of working. And I think also I'm a very kind of glass half full person and a glass half full researcher. And this is a team which from the start assumed that there were good things happening in the world, um, like brilliant care practices, um, assumed that families were doing and inventing and creating amazing ways of not just coping, but thriving, uh, whilst their children had, um, you know, were using feeding tubes. Mm. And the kind of that spirit was really appealing to me that we weren't there just to kind of critique the status quo, but to assume that there were pockets of really cool things happening. And our job was partly to kind of catch those and then spread them. Those were the things that really appealed to me. Plus, I've been doing work for about 10 years in child and family settings. So it was something that was... I was on the orbit of familiarity with, but was incredibly novel to me. Like the first time I had a conversation about tube feeding was the first conversation I had about this project. Like never before then had I really heard of it. So it had all that novelty, but immediately I was thinking, whoa, I should have known about this. That's not okay. And so it was immediately like, wow, we really need to do something here because how have I got 10 years into research in child and family settings and not really you know, confronted things to do with tubing before. That's not how it should be. Practice, activism, and lots of positivity. I love it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Nick, Succeed delivers holistic information, connections, and support to and for parents and families. Can you provide, I don't know, a sort of overview of the sorts of numbers of children and families in our community for whom tube feeding is a part of life at some stage in their child's life? You know, brushstroke indicative picture yeah it's, it's interesting that um and I, I, I will kind of orbit some numbers it's a really interesting question about how many children tube feed and one of our missions is to actually find out properly and to be able to answer that question much better than I can today it's something we're still working on mm. we did approach a hospital and for several months work with them to try and find out within one institution like a hospital how many children under their care would be tube feeding on any one day and it kind of proved too difficult to do mm. too many systems miss it and it's recorded if it is recorded it's recorded in so many different ways that it was just kind of almost at that time too much effort to figure out um, we can think about it in terms of why children might be tube feeding so in the general population there are two peaks of times in your life when you're more likely to tube feed old age mm. to do with some degenerations in kind of oral skills and things like that and right at the start of life so those who start life a little bit too early, the kind of extreme premature babies, many of them will be tube fed uh, to help them gain that weight in the early days and weeks. Um, and then around birth, there are many other common causes for tube feeding then, but it can, tube feeding doesn't only start at birth. It might start after complex surgeries or if chronic health conditions become manifest and it might continue for some children for just a few days, some for weeks. Uh, some for months or years and, and for some it will be a lifelong experience so those different re moments of starting tube feeding the different durations of it mean it's quite hard to record exactly who's tube feeding and who might only be tube feeding versus some children who can eat safely orally but need the tube for a top-up yes so it's a very simple question you ask but I'm giving you a really complicated answer 
we would expect sort of, we think between one and eight per 100,000 uh, children will be tube feeding kind of in the first few years of life. That's kind of based on international estimates. There are no good, like solid data for that in Australia that we are aware of, which might seem low, but there are a lot of children around. <laughs> and so, and um, it's, I think a better way to think of it is that if you think of your workplace, or your community or the school that your child goes to, say if you've got a child who's in primary school, the chances are that somebody in their school will have tube fed at some point in their life. Yeah. Like that's a nice way of thinking. Like it's it's common enough that you might not have known about it. It might not have been done whilst they were at school. But in a population as big as a school or a community or a workplace or something like that, chances are you could probably meet a family where tube feeding had been part of their journey. One of your colleagues on your wonderful website, which I'll get to in a sec, talks about how, you know, the, the, the many genres or types and, and phasings of tube feeding. And that generally speaking, obviously, no, no, no hard data. That's what you're working on. Um, but, you know, often for children under five and perhaps very, most commonly within the range of naught to three years of age. So, yeah, such such precious and important times developmentally and, and for families and bonding and all the rest. One of the ways Succeed builds community and connects parents with each other is via the wonderful childfeeding.org website that you've already mentioned. That's all about the program and about sharing practical information, tips and inspiration to support parents and families who tube feed. Would you like to tell us just a little bit more about the website and what lies behind it and perhaps, and perhaps share what to you might be some particular highlights in terms of your, you know, role within the project and so forth? I, I, I like, for example, I especially love the, the cushy meals information, was fascinated to see the Nepalese language on that, on that part of the site. So the childfeeding.org website was the part of our initial mission that primarily sat with me because we saw it as a question of kind of curating what parents had learned often spontaneously and through their own trial and error in their own journeys, and then presenting that in a way that would make it easy for other parents to learn from that experience and that kind of practical wisdom, if you like, that families gain as they go through their tube feeding journeys. That started because one of the things that Chris, our paediatrician, confronted me with, he said many families who leave hospital with a newborn child who happens to be tube feeding will leave with the child, the tubes and a PDF. And that's not a lot considering how disruptive tube feeding is. <laughs> and there's a whole load of stuff that the PDF covers that's very important about the kind of, you know, what to put in the tube and how often and how to clean it and those kind of things. But the rest of how to get on with life, complete silence. And so really it was our job to break that silence over you know, kind of what the tube feels like in life, what some of the de decisions are, how you might go about making those decisions without us providing the answer. The process was that we spoke to parents and everything you see on that website, we can trace directly back to things that parents told us. That's really, really important. It was tricky at times because sometimes parents say it's important to do not to do what clinicians tell you. And we have clinicians on the team and we have to be quite careful about how we present that. But some of the things that really struck me were just how confronting and challenging everyday life can be when you're a parent with a child who tube feeds. Getting out of the door is practically difficult and challenging. There's a lot of extra bits of kit to remember. I'm sure as an early parent, I've not been there myself, but I've sat with enough parents that you know, just getting out to the park or to a cafe can be a big deal with a young child anyway. Layer on top of that extra kit, you know, plasters, sticking tape tubes, um, different kinds of food, practically it can be difficult to get past the front door and then socially it can be difficult if you're walking through the park and somebody comes up to you and says oh my goodness you're you know your poor child how long have they got to live like that's what people have told us happens and so this you know the outside world can become this thing that you're desperate for for you and for your child but is also really almost threatening but certainly confronting and and difficult to to be in and when we heard those stories over and over again are people feeling stigmatized and judged? We thought that's not okay. We have to do something about that. Um, and the first thing we did was just share the techniques and strategies that parents had used to overcome that. So it was things like, you know, I, I just prepare a little script in my head and use metaphors to say like, oh, you know, you're wearing glasses. I can see Anthea, you're wearing glasses today. You know, that helps you see, you know, it does a little bit of extra work for your eyes. Well, my child, you know, uses a tube. It's the same thing. 
So parents used metaphors and scripts like that so they didn't have to kind of think on the spot when these challenging conversations came up in public. Other things they did was have checklists on the back of their doors and handbags ready with everything in. So when you're in the flustered state of about trying to leave the house, the little one bit that slips your mind doesn't become a massive problem. That means you have to abort the, you know, the trip to the park or the cafe or whatever it is. People had spares of everything put in their glove compartments. And this was a bit that I found so joyful was learning how parents adapt their everyday kind of objects and repurpose things mm. to make the world navigable when you have a child who's tube feeding. So makeup bags become storage for a tube at the back of your neck. Little Velcro things that you might stick on the side of a sofa to hold the TV remote get stuck up in the car so they can hold the tube high to like the gravity feed. <laughs> so many different, I, I, kind of the MacGyver sort of approach to, the, I found that fascinating and with the kind of the, the educational kind of questions I come up the world with. They were really, really interesting about how people sort of outsourced to the everyday world some of the solutions they had to these really quite significant um, challenges. Just a quick question there. You've sort of alluded to, well, you're not alluded to, you've told us about the different ages and different sorts of intensity of tube feeding, you know, perhaps in hospital after an emergency surgery or as a premature baby or perhaps over a number of years with a particular health condition. Can, can you just sort of briefly describe the sorts of food journey or experience of babies and children who require tube feeding in terms of the different uh, genres or styles, you know, technologies of what tube feeding means, like there's through the nose and there's through the tummy. Is there something else to elaborate there? Sure. So our main focus is on those children who for a while almost exclusively have to tube feed. Um, those who can kind of safely feed orally and need the tube for top up. It's, it's, it's kind of a big deal, but it's not our central concern. Um, those who exclusively tube feed nearly always start their tube feeding journey with what we call a nasogastric tube, which is the, the one you mentioned. It goes up your nose and then it comes down into your, your digestive system. And usually the tube kind of gets hooked around the back of your ear on one side of your face and then taped up. And quite often it's um, gravity that's used to deliver food through that tube. So you kind of hold it up, put some goop in the top and down it goes. The issues with those are, it's very uncomfortable to have it inserted. Mm. Really is, it's like, I mean, you know what the COVID test feels like going up, you know, as well, imagine they didn't stop and just like kept pushing and pushing. Mm. They can easily come out. Children can pull them out themselves. You know, you don't have to have a massive finger to get it up kind of between your, you know, the cheek, between your cheekbone and your nose and whoop, out it comes. Um, and not all parents are able to reinsert the tube themselves. And one of the shocking things we found is not all parents knew that that was something they could learn to do. Some hospitals tell parents right away, if you want to learn this, come back, we can train you up. Some hospitals never mention it. We met a family that had been to hospital every week for several months, every week at least once. And when we were in a focus group and the person sitting next to us said, oh, yeah, well, when she was two months old, we learned to put it in ourselves because we got sick of going to hospital. Her jaw just dropped and said, you what? <laughs> I didn't know that was even possible. I can do that. <laughs> it's a big deal. No, that's a huge impact. Um, and the other third thing about these nasogastric tubes is they're very visible. And we've been taught as a society to associate a child with a tube coming out of their nose and across their cheekbone as a sick child. You know, how many charity campaigns can you think if you want to make people feel pity and give you their money, you take a black and white photo of a child, stick a tube on their nose and put them on their side in the hospital bed and there you go. Most tube, food journey, tube feeding journeys start with this NG, nasogastric tube. The World Health Organization recommends that if that tube feeding is going to kind of continue for several months or longer, that uh, some other alternative is suggested. Um, for the reasons I've discussed about displacement and of the tube and the visibility of it, um, and kind of some kind of constant discomfort, but also um, triggering of vomiting. So if you have a tube going up through your nose and back, it tends to, to produce excess vomiting, which is, again, another, another kind of thing to have to deal with. Mm. And in Australia, one of the more common next steps would be a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, or PEG. is a much easier way of saying it, which is a shorter tube. A PEG. I can refer to it as a PEG. PEG. Yep, yep. That's mm -hmm. A shorter tube that goes from kind of close to the, your belly button and directly in there. And that's surgically emplaced. So that's quite a big 
move for parents. And one of the things on our website you'll see to peg or not is one of the big decisions that we don't rec make a recommendation of, but we do get under the bonnet of how parents think about that decision and what they think retrospectively about making that decision. One of the things that might make parents hesitant about going from a, uh, an NG tube through the nose to a peg is, is yet another surgery. And often children are tube feeding because they've had other surgeries and they've been sick for other reasons. And it's it can feel cruel to send your child back into hospital yet again. And it can also feel very permanent. You know, the idea of the tube that could be pulled out any day, you could think, oh, I might be able to pull it out one day. Whereas something there involves kind of accepting the tube as a longer presence in your life and your child's life than you might have initially envisaged. Many parents say they like the peg because you can go, start wearing kind of, you know, it doesn't show so much. Um, it can't be pulled out so easily. It's technically possible, but it's much less visible for the, the child. And if they do fiddle with it, you can kind of wear onesies and, and things like that. Fascinating. Most of the parents we've met who did make the decision to use a peg with hindsight might have gone so earlier. Like I think because it's such a hard decision to make, I think one of the things that makes the decision harder and one of the things we would like to get working better is that very easy to insert a tube or to start tube feeding, I should say. It's easy to start tube feeding. Stopping it is the real issue. And conversations on day one or even day zero or minus one of tube feeding, we would like to also include the prospect of the end of tube, for tube feeding for those children for who it is um, kind of anticipated that they will uh, either learn or return to feed um, orally. Um, because those conversations had early that might say, even if you do progress, or I wouldn't say progress, if you do change to a peg, um, it, it might, it wouldn't delay how soon you might return to oral feeding and it wouldn't make it any more complicated. That might help parents make that decision with, you know, kind of more information. Mm. So some children will tube feed using an NG tube for a number of weeks, gain the weight they need if they were born prematurely and quite quickly return to shift transition to oral feeding. Others, it will be prolonged for various reasons and they might move to a, a peg. Some children, depending on the reason for tube feeding, they might need almost constant feeding. So it will depend on the causes, but some children will be attached to a pump to help them um, feed in small amounts very, very frequently during the day. Others might be tube feeding four or five times a day or closer to three or two. So the, the kind of the extra technologies that kind of what lies beyond the end of the tube can vary. It can be a syringe. Um, it can be a pump. Um, yes. Um, so some children who have, might have very small stomachs or only able to process small bits of food at a time. Some children might be connected to a pump nearly all the day, like 24 hours a day. Some for certain periods of time. Some might have a pump that they can take around with them, a mobile one. Some could be really quite um, kind of big and unwieldy equipment that they need to be close to. And for some children, tube feeding is something that will be part of their lives for their whole life. And that life might be a very long life and an otherwise very healthy and happy life. Um, but there might be reasons, particularly with kind of uh, if there are genetic reasons why tube feeding is needed. It may be that kind of those reasons remain. And so tube feeding is, and those will almost always have some sort of surgical tube. It could be a peg, which I've mentioned. There are also ones called and J tubes, there are various different formations of those. But the main difference is, is it through the nose or is it surgically going more directly to the digestive system? That's right. And 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 is it is it for a short period? It may be for life. And it could also be in combination with oral eating as well. So it's a, it's a fascinating matrix of uh, challenges and opportunities and things to get your head around. So it's so exciting what your team are all doing. Cushy, cushy meals. Tell me, tell me. One of the things I got so excited about after we'd built the first version of childfeeding.org was an opportunity we had through Southeastern Sydney Local Health District and a multicultural health grant was to work with the Nepali community around Cogra and Rockdale. Um, it's a fast growing community in Australia and particularly in that part of Sydney for various reasons that we don't fully understand. Um, but feeding difficulties are quite prevalent in uh, young Nepali um, babies and infants. Um, some, there's a, a, a tendency for some to be born with low birth weight, which is associated with early feeding difficulties. Um, many parents are involved in shift work. So kind of mum might be working during the day and dad overnight and grandparents are often 
involved in care, including feeding care. And so there are kind of various complexities and cultural uh, contexts that mean that the, the stories that families have are quite different and sometimes quite particular for Nepali families in um, Australia. And so we worked with Anjana Regmi, who's uh, Nepali herself, and in fact, um, one of her children did tube feed when they were younger, so she was kind of had her full heart as well as all her cultural context knowledge and was able to translate for us. So we spoke to parents in Nepali and got their stories, and they were quite different. So there are certain rites of passage, like Pasni is a kind of a rice feeding ceremony that would often happen around six months. Um, if your child is tube feeding rice down their throat would not be a safe or sensible thing to do. And so you kind of how to navigate those things. And so, yeah, it was a really exciting part of the, um, the website to build meeting families from those communities uh, and being able to work with them in Nepali and producing a version of the website that was both in Nepali and in English was something that we're really, really proud of. It's really beautiful and really powerful and, and, and relates to something else you and your colleagues have written and spoken about elsewhere about how the Succeed program is of and particularly for the people of Sydney. I thought that was really beautiful. And, and your colleague refers to, you know, in terms of the incredible cultural diversity and the particular challenges and opportunities that may travel with that. I mean, obviously, in a different, in a, in a second language, in a written form, on a PDF, <laughs> how accessible is that? Would you like to comment or elaborate on that further? I mean, you've already given a lovely vignette there about the Nepali community and and you spoke earlier about people leaving hospital with a PDF that assumes they can read, that it's in their language, et cetera, et cetera. Would you like to just, I don't know, reflect, quickly comment on how the program is of and particularly for the people of Sydney? Ah, well, yes, I think we will always be that, although our ambitions are getting you know, wider, our horizons are now across, you know, beyond Australia with the connections that we've made. Of course, of course. But, but Sydney is such a multicultural, fabulous. Yeah, one of the, the the ways that we remain really of and for Sydney is through these tube feeding picnics that we've run. The first one happened in 2019. That was an event that we were blown away by the number of families that came, the kind of people who said they would support us. So we got a whole bunch of children's entertainers who came down and, and you know, gave up their time for us. And that was the first time for many of those children growing up in Sydney that they got to eat next to somebody eating the same way they did i.e. with a tube can you imagine that you know you might have got to two years old three years old yeah. all the socialization that happens around feeding never to have actually got to do that with somebody who fed the way you do mm. uh, and with that was such a big moment and it was such a big moment for parents to have occupy a public space you know we, this is you know kind of it was a big park you know a public park in sydney and and we're really really proud that sydney is the first place in australia where public space has been occupied to celebrate tube feeding and the children who tube feed and the lives and the play that they have i love it um and it was a platform for parents to describe their journeys and to to make connections and it was through that that we met more parents um who've become part of our team so that's one way in which we're kind of often for sydney the other is that with Chris, our pediatrician, and the contacts we have in the healthcare um, sector, they're strongest here in Sydney. And so some of the opportunities that we have to do things either directly through healthcare or around the edges of healthcare are happening first in Sydney. We're working with Sydney Children's Hospital to construct the world's first tube feeding friendly cafe. It's no coincidence that that's in Sydney because that's where our, you know, um, our contacts with the healthcare system primarily are, although we also have strong contacts up in um, Queensland. Um, plus the original funders for Succeed, Maridulu Budyari Gamal, um, the, the kind of English version of that Sydney Partnership for Health Education Research and Enterprise is a bunch of Sydney institutions, Sydney-based universities, Sydney-based healthcare. The, the other thing that you mentioned around culture, and you started off in your introduction mentioning it, that we really don't feed our children with our brains. We feed our children with our hearts and our hearts are always a reflection of our culture, you know, partly. And so um, the fact that one might feed through a nasogastric tube or a peg um, always kind of has an interaction with one's culture. Um, it's, we never feed neutrally. And those values that we bring to feeding are closely connected to our cultures. And as multicultural and diverse as Sydney is, we couldn't do this work as if it was in a cultural vacuum, because feeding is such a cultural thing to do. Nick, 
In the many events, activities and art projects that you parents and colleagues collaborate on and are constantly creating, I can't wait to, I can't wait to come to the cafe at Sydney Children's Hospital, um, you enact and throw forward transformative activist type approaches that prioritise absolutely children's agency, their joy and their abilities to participate in many childhood, social and play activities that are not associated with disability. Um, and it's all to help challenge and reset the status quo of perceptions and understandings of tube feeding and what it means, uh, what it actually means and feels like to as a lived experience for children, for their parents, their family, their grandparents and greater community. It's, 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 really, um, it's really liberatory uh, thinking and, 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 and action and it's, it's just so beautiful. Let's spend some time talking about that just in terms of nuts and bolts of why that approach matters so much. Um, can you tell me? What are some of the challenges to children living well while tube, while tube feeding? And can you talk about or describe some key challenges through the lens of agency for parents and children? What a wonderful opportunity. Um, the challenges to living well for children themselves, I think, is a good, good way in. Um, so we can start from kind of like, if you like, the child and their body that um, tube feeding um, presents some kind of physical challenges. Mm. Excess vomiting can be one. Um, the fact that one will still smell all the foods around you, but you might not be tasting them. Um, and the visible difference that you might have if you have a, a nasogastric um, tube. Um, one of the more complicated ones is that if you are tube feeding, you might be not learning the things that you might learn quite normally about how to chew and swallow food. I had no idea before we started this project, but chewing and swallowing are really complicated things to do. Um, you know, you have to move food over to the side of your mouth and you have to know when it's ready to swallow and all those kind of things. The longer tube feeding goes on, particularly if it's happened since birth, the greater the risk that you might not learn those things. And so the thing that's keeping you alive can also become the thing that stops you learning how to feed orally. So that is, a, a, I think, a a challenge presented to living well for children because there are children today in Sydney who are using a tube, a tube to feed who actually don't need to. They could have learned weeks ago, perhaps even months ago, to feed orally, but for various reasons have not yet done so. And that's a problem that's recognised in the healthcare system and one that really is a challenge for children and their families because they're scared they're nervous yes so you know kind of one of the big things is you know kind of the tube is a very efficient and kind of reliable way to ensure that a child gets all the nutrition that they need and why would you stop that you know and particularly when it, you might not be able to prove or know in advance that the children has the, the child has the chewing and swallowing you know, techniques and, and motor skills that they um, would need so that's one of the challenges plus then if we go out from kind of the child's body we get Challenges for the parents, how to leave the house with the extra equipment. What about the sibling? If the sibling wants to go swimming and your child who's tube feeding needs to be fed every two hours, how do you do the timing with everything? There are logistical issues we've heard from parents who struggle to get their children into daycare or childcare because the childcare systems don't know how to deal with tubes and would rather not kind of have the issue. What if they get pulled out? You might have parents perhaps subconsciously retreat from social connection with you because they find it awkward they don't know how to broach the conversation or they worry that their child will pull the tube out and create a big problem or something like that so you might find yourself quite socially isolated yeah sleepover sleepovers become a whole new ball game don't they oh yeah all those kind of things that we might you know, kind of take for granted can become a big deal um, so those are some of the, I guess, the challenges to living well. If we think living well is not just about gaining weight, but living well is about joining in the things that make childhood joyful. And that for parents, you know, they also need those human connections. It's not just that their child has friends, but they get to have you know, time with other grown-ups, and that has to be joyful time too. So for me, I come at that as a question of agency, because agency is all about the difference between the future that appears to be given the one that's going to happen if we kind of there's nothing we can do about anything and the future that ought to be and the future that ought to be is often more possible than we think it really is time and time and time again whether in tube feeding or other aspects of life researchers like me find over and over again that what seem like unviable or unheard of or impossible futures are actually within our grasp if we have the right tools available and strategies 
to grasp them. And that's not to suggest that it's kind of people's fault for failing to grasp them. But in fact, the deficit, if there is one, is in society in the way it responds to families and children who tube feed, not in the parents or the children themselves. It's really important that we say that. So agency is about how you redirect your life from the course that's given, which might be one of perpetual tube feeding and stigma and isolation, to the course that ought to be, which is one of social inclusion, joyfulness, thriving, and hopefully for those children for whom it's you know, kind of possible, a transition to oral feeding on the first day that it, it's kind of possible, not the 300th day that it might have been possible or the 600th. Fantastic. I'm just wondering if my next question fits or not. And so I was going to say, and so further to you, what does living well with tube feeding mean? But have we already covered that? I think it's always worth reinforcing. (laughs) Nick, further to what you've just talked about. Living well whilst tube feeding, to me, is nothing different than living well if you eat with your hands, with chopsticks, with a knife and fork, whether you feed by breast or by bottle as an infant. It means the same to have warm relationships with confident and happy and thriving caregivers, to be included in your communities and in the environments that you're around, and for the the means that you feed to be a barrier to nothing, whether that's access to childcare, friendships, anything like that. That's the same. That relies heavily on us as adults, not casting shadows over children who tube feed that are not our shadows to cast. And those stereotypes and assumptions that we make are uh, some of the things that anybody listening today can make a difference to life is by being aware of those kind of shadows that you might cast and just going, no, I'm going to switch that off. I'm going to shine a light bulb instead. And if we do encounter children who tube feed to recognize them first as children. And I hope I've been careful in this podcast to always talk about children who tube feed because That's how parents ask us to refer to them. They're not tube fed kids. It's not the tube that comes first. It's the child that comes first. And they happen to be a child who tube feeds often just for a while. Oh, beautifully put, Nick. And there's a beautiful line in one of your articles that says, um, living well is something that becomes possible because of feeding tubes, not despite them. (laughs) Nick, um, let's talk about um, the fun that children who are tube fed and their parents who have children who are tube fed, that they can have with making up their own do-it-yourself lovely recipes and solutions in their own kitchens together convivially and, and with love and warmth and all those good things. How prescriptive or particular are tube feeding nutrition requirements? And I suppose uh, circularly, I'm, cu- I'm curious about how much flexibility do parents, kids and families have to do it themselves, make, make their own special tube blends and special recipes? Ah, so that's a really interesting question. Um, and before we get to what you can put down the tube, I think it's really important to remember that our contact with food is not purely what goes past our lips. We can be in contact with food and we can be in contact with others through food in its preparation. So regardless of what is or isn't safe to put down a tube or put past you know, a child's lips, You can make anything you like in the kitchen. You can get as messy as you like. You can make any chocolate cake you like or pie or whatever it is. There's nothing to prevent children, you know, once they're they're old enough to start doing those things with their hands to join in that process of, you know, kind of enjoying the textures of food as you feel them with your fingers, the smells, the idea it's something we create. In terms of then um, some children will be able to put some things on their lips and get a bit of taste. Some might even be able to swallow small amounts of certain textures. But then mainly we're talking about children for whom, you know, whatever they they get nutritionally will come in a blended form or a liquefied form through a tube. The answer to that is rather varied. And clinicians, in fact, are not, as far as I'm aware, in 100% agreement about what should go down a tube, at what age and things like that. Um, But generally, I would say it's, it's, it's often quite open and with dietitians and speech pathologists and pediatricians kind of supporting parents to experiment and try different things so that it's not just a question of the volume of calories but the quality of those um, calories and including whether parents might be able to make a meal that four or five family members enjoy one of whom happens to have in a blended form Um, those are things that are perhaps more open than many parents feel And it's a question, I think one of the things that we're trying to help parents feel confident to do is to maybe trigger that conversation with the clinicians supporting them, um, because it may not always come 
naturally clinicians have for very good reasons a number of concerns that have to be something that they would want to check in on like a child is gaining weight or other things that question about you know can I blend the sausages and put them down the tube is a really good question to take to a clinic when you go depending on the reason for tube feeding the answer might be um, different and we have heard from parents who've you know kind of pushed that question and almost gone until they found the answer they wanted from the clinicians. Clinicians have quite different philosophies on these things and some will be kind of, I guess, more risk averse than, than others. And so it is one of the challenges as a parent is navigating that um, system. You'll see on the website, some of the parents saying they trusted their instincts. And that is an important thing that whilst we, you know, kind of clinicians will always say some things, you know, kind of in an advised way, but parents' instincts are really, really important. And one of the stories we have around a child who, if it wasn't for the mother trusting her instincts and a chance encounter on a beach, would probably still be tube feeding today because the clinicians saw very few signs that it was safe to stop um, using a tube uh, to, to feed. A chance encounter on a beach and the mother met somebody who said, oh, yeah, my niece used to tube feed and they did this bus thing and she stopped. And they kind of, she had to corral these clinicians and say, no, we've got to back my daughter. I know she can do it. She can, she can. And over a wrap, they did a rapid tube weaning thing. And, and then, you know, she had took a bit of puree off her finger. And that was day one of a whole new you know, approach to life and approach to, to feeding. And the last time I saw them, she was eating a chip, uh, you know, a, a French fry. Um, so these questions around kind of what you can and can't put down a tube and things like that are really important. And that's one of those things is to not, we would really hope that parents don't feel there's kind of one given future for that and feel confident to ask and if, if they're feeling there's something they would like to be putting down the tube. The other thing around what I said about um, when we think about our contact with food, there is preparation. There is also a whole load of stuff to do with feeding that again is to do with its social setting rather than just necessarily what goes past your lips or down a tube. And another story we heard from a parent who was able to help her son stop tube feeding where she said right whilst he's tube feeding i'll delegate to the clinicians how often he needs to eat how much what texture and everything but she said every day i'm going to do something that helps him be ready for the day when he doesn't need to tube feed and that was normalizing the idea of food taking him to cafes including him in everything that involved food um, letting him play with food with his hands when he was able to start to eat orally and safely and things like that, giving him lots of choice and freedom around his food. So food was a positive and joyful experience. And for them, it was a, a transition to partially tube feeding or fully tube feeding, then partially tube feeding and doing a little bit of just, you know, fun texture, taste work, and then some of the nutrition coming through food and less through the tube. And then it got to a point where nearly all the nutrition was coming through food. And still after that, there was quite a long time before they got rid of the tube because it's there for emergencies and all those kind of things. But every day that mother told us she was doing something to socialize and prepare her son in all the ways that you need to be for feeding. So feeding is a complex thing to do with chewing and swallowing, but it's also a social and a cultural thing. So regardless of what's going down the tube, there's a huge amount of freedom available to parents to include and socialize their children into to feeding in whatever way suits them. It's a really comprehensive, uh, fascinating answer that it is, you know, it is slightly contested, but a really creative space. And uh, just ask your clinician. And just on that subject, just for listeners, to highlight this fabulous publication that's just come out that does include content from Succeed and a beautiful art project that they were involved in, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But this beautiful publication just is called The Blend. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful big resource published by Cardinal Health in 2022 that shares incredible personal stories of parents and children and um, lots of recipes and technical health and nutrition tips. And it's just and it's presented as a most beautiful resource. Nick, um, Succeed has initiated all sorts of inspiring events. You've already uh, mentioned the tube feeding picnic an amazing way for people to, to get together and build their own networks of support and friendship. But you've also been involved in some really pretty funky arts projects to help share positive images and stories about what life is like as a child and parent involved in the whole tube feeding scene uh, and really about refusing and uh, redressing deficit type thinking, which we've spoken about with regard to agency. Can you just briefly perhaps tell us about um, Kate Dishquill's photographic body of work called Be Not Afraid of My Body that um, 
that she created and that was exhibited and installed at the Sydney Children's Hospital in 2021. It's it's a really beautiful story. It is. I mean, what an astonishing title, Be Not Afraid of My Body, right? That that tells you immediately, you know, kind of how tubes have been responded to and how people react to, to tube feeding is, you know, it's something that's unfamiliar and scary and confronting. And Kate Dishequil, uh, Join the Succeed team, and she's now been you know, a long-standing partner and collaborator of ours. She spent time with families, um, which is really, really important. She got to in kind of, particularly, you don't have to spend months with a family, but spending a day or two with a child, and you can certainly see, you know, this is how this child is really cheeky, or this is how this child makes me laugh when I don't expect it, or little moments um, come up over time when you can you can see kind of, how the world shines through particular um, children. And so she had this, her exhibition really, I think, casts light in two ways. One is it shows beautiful children, images of children doing what children do, like, you know, playing, being brave and bold and being children. But they also do capture something of um, the realities and struggle that it can involve as a parent. It's not a Disneyland version of tube feeding. It's a very realistic one it's very warming um and kind of recognizing what goes on and it it was a real breakthrough for us in succeed because we'd wanted for a long time to find ways to shift tube feeding from something alien and different and other and unfamiliar and something as seeing as you know kind of images that you might respond to and feel pity or distance and separation, a kind of, oh my gosh, thank God, not me, to something that was familiar and could provoke feelings of connection and, you know, similarity rather than differences. And I think that's what Kate Dishaquil's work did beyond our wildest dreams in the way she, you know, she produced those photographs was when we look at those photographs, you know, you, you feel joy, you recognise something familiar, which is a child being a child or a mother looking really tired. <laughs> that's not an unusual thing regardless of how one's child feeds and so Kate was able to capture realistically and empathetically and respectfully um, life for children who tube feed and for their parents um, whilst also helping us break some of those barriers of kind of separation between us and them that are so much part of the the social deficit that is what creates challenges for, for children and their families. Mm -hmm. And Nick that exhibition, is it permanently installed? Yeah, no, no, no the, the pictures have been taken down for now. They're stored. They're not going anywhere. We're, uh, we're always interested to figure out where they might go next. Just anecdotally, obviously, you're delivering all sorts of positive resources, amazing connections and experiences for people. Anecdotally, are there one or two things that really stand out to you about what parents are getting out of this program? Certainly, it's a multiplied number of ways now that a parent going through this will feel that they're not alone. It might not be that parents necessarily meet another family with a child who tube feeds. There may not be one in their immediate neighbourhood, but certainly I think we have magnified and amplified the voices that are available to parents to say, this is not just you going through this and that you do not have to make this all up yourself. You can, you know, kind of, freely available any time of day there is a whole load of you know wisdom and experience there that parents have generously wanted to to share and i think that's that's just so important because when it's three o'clock in the morning and the tubers come out again and you've got all the fatigue and the stress of your know, kind of early parenting anyway it's so important to to know that there are you know, people around i think the other thing is to do with the horizon of thinking. And this was a part of the website we didn't plan, but which um, has become a big one, which is on childfeeding.org. It's under real stories. And I spoke earlier about agency. Um, to take steps towards an alternative future, you have to envision that future. And um, we've learned that for so many parents, tube feeding initially can be so consuming and you, you're focused not even on today, but like the next hour and a half. When's the next feed coming? Will the tube stay in that long? You know, kind of what next? What if we run out of this? What if, it, you know, like... Just living in a state of anxiety. Absolutely. And going from one feed to the next. I'm sure like many parents who are breastfeeding or bottle feeding, you will recognize that. And it's just kind of 
amplified, I guess, in a tube feeding situation. So that horizon of the idea of imagining your child older, you know, and being whatever it might be, a surgeon or an astronaut or whatever it is they want to be, or a chef, Henry the chef, whoever that might be, um, it can be impossible, you know, and just really hard. And those real stories are is so important that they're there for those moments when, you know, maybe for the first time there is a half hour for the mum and dad to be together or the parents or the carers to be together and to think, I wonder what the day without the tube might look like and how might we get there? And those that making the horizon imaginable is a crucial first step because once we've got there, then you can start to have conversations with clinicians and your community about taking the steps to get to that horizon. But without those stories, it's, it's really not a given that the idea of a, a happy, thriving childhood with or without a tube, depending on the situation, um, is available to these parents. And it means a huge amount to us that that's the case. We're then working on things like, you know, hopefully the tube feeding cafe will go well and we'd love a world where there's a whole series of cafes around. This is what I was talking about earlier about our long-term horizons. We'd love for every suburb to have at least one cafe. One would be kind of practically, you know, how do we address the social deficits around tube feeding? And we would love, and cafes are such points of, you know, they're not just points of feeding, but they're points of social connection. They are where, you know, communities, you know, happen. They're our, they're our, there's a lovely, you know, in urban planning speak, they're our very, often very important third spaces, aren't they? It's where you get out there. And how nice would it be for every suburb in Sydney, at least first, to have a cafe where the people, the staff from the cafe recognise tube feeding, they know how to respond positively, and um, you kind of um, politely to it um, and you know it, that might look differently but we're thinking that they might have coloring books where some of the pictures you color in include pictures of children who tube feed because how many times will a child have ever got to color in somebody who looks like them probably never there'll be little qr codes that will help people understand how to respond helpfully and um, kind of positively as a community and there'll be all sorts of things that we can do to make tube feeding in a cafe a more joyful experience but also something that starts to reshape society so we'd love those we're going to continue our tube feeding picnics every year we're in the process of being kind of legally formalized as a charity and we're starting our life as a charity we're just over i think it's thirty thousand dollars courtesy of um, uh, uh, online fundraising event, fundraising event that Sydney Children's Hospital Foundation Network um, helped us be part of. And um, for that money, we've promised a number of things, one of which is to provide some additional training for secondary carers to learn how to tube feed. So if you are a family with a child who tube feeds at the moment, the healthcare system in New South Wales will pretty much train one person. And we'd love families to be able to choose a second person to get that training. Now, it might be if the first person is the mother, the second person might be the father, but it might be for thinking about you know, generational parenting, say in the Nepali community, it might be that it's really important for a grandparent to learn. It might be that the next most important person would be the person at daycare this year. is, And that will be run by parents who are part of the core succeed team now. And we're using some of that money to make sure we have the right equipment available to do that training. And uh, yeah, we've, that's at least some of what's on our agenda. Okay, so if I were to ask you, blue sky, big picture, no budget constraints, what two or three huge impacts or outcomes would you like to see succeed and all of your colleagues and partners uh, realise, say, 10 years from now? Pretty much on script with what you've just described or are we going international and taking over the world? Um, oh, definitely beyond Australia, but Australia first. But I think we can we can make a bigger dif- a bigger and better difference in Australia by working internationally because this is not only that Australia this is happening and there are amazing things happening in other parts of the world. There's a huge kind of critical mass developing in the United States around um, kind of nutritional matters, and particularly around feeding difficulties. It was from there where the first clinical definition of a pediatric feeding disorder came out only in 2019 prior to 2019 right there was no clinical definition for these things like astonishing um so we want to be riding that wave and you know and kind of amplifying it i think we would like in australia which is where we have you know kind of ability to influence at least within the healthcare system we would like to think that every time tube feeding gets started as part of healthcare in australia the prospect of it stopping is also mentioned and discussed that won't cost 
necessarily anything, but it's a big change. It will be a big change. And then to follow through on that first mention with clear plans and regular check-ins to see for those children for whom it is possible, make sure that we move towards tube weaning and to oral feeding no later than is, you know, kind of is, is safe and, and healthy. That would make a huge difference to a, a very large number of people if we can get that to happen. Um, I think on the kind of the, the softer side, we would love to see representations of children who tube feed all over the place. I'd love to see them on nappy boxes. You know, like you see, diversity is represented in so many ways. We're so aware of diversity and how we represent things these days. We would love, you know, whether it's you know, nappy brands or the ABC in their children's programming or whoever it is, when they have those conversations about representation and diversity, tube feeding to be one of those things that's considered. Nick, this is a slightly odd question, or you know, left <laughs> left of center question. Tube feeding most of us might need it at the beginning of life and at the end of life or at the end of life. Do you see your program and your work connecting with the aged care sector and, and uh, you know, quite specifically with the needs and challenges of tube feeding, of older people who are tube fed? What a good question. Um, I'd say not immediately. I, I think there'll be a huge number of parallels and you know, kind of what it means to thrive as a carer and as a person who is tube feeding in older life are really important questions. Uh, they're not the ones that we have the right team for at the moment. Um, and I think we feel that there's so much that needs to be done in the early life space that we, I, my, my feeling personally is that we kind of, we might not dilute that, but would we be happy and joyful to, to see another team coming up and say, hey, we want to be the succeed for the end of life or later in life? That would be amazing. And I, I really hope if that, that team doesn't exist, that one exists soon because it is equally needed. Yeah. Yeah. And an amazing skills for carers of all professions, professional and within the family for us all to perhaps have. Thank you. <laughs> Any further comments or call-outs you might like to make? You mentioned the charity, that you're almost a charity. If people want to financially support what you're doing, how can they do that now? Um, they come to childfeeding.org. Um, hopefully, as soon as we're legally able to, we'll put information up there on how to um, donate. Otherwise, you can always email us and there are uh, kind of ways that we can um, kind of temporarily hold that. We really appreciate that and we we absolutely hand on heart, you know, all the money that we receive goes for things that parents tell us are important. And I think linked to that is, you know, for us at first, it was daunting. And I'm sure many listeners might think, you know, kind of, these are not small problems. They're not single problems. They're complicated and they have lots of, kind of ripple effects through what it means for families and communities. And we are trying to change the world, you know, not every aspect of it, but it is a big thing that we're trying to do. However, we know, because we've seen it happen, that small things can have big effects. So that can be to do with you know, the way that professionals, clinicians, you know, respond to children in clinics. It's amazing, just it doesn't take an extra five, not even an extra five minutes, but just care with words can make parents feel that this clinic is about their child feeling loved rather than just feeling fed and full. Um, so we're all about small things that have big effects. The picnic that we ran, did not cost a fortune, but it had a huge impact for those who were able to, to go. And so um, that's really part of our philosophy is we want to push things that are feasible, sustainable, and durable, and that, um, yeah, we can do these kind of nudges that have that kind of positively contagious trickle effect and, and bring about the kind of social changes um, that we would want. There are some lovely words on the child feeding website. It's not just about the food. It's about the people you share it with. Tubes fill stomachs, sharing a meal fills hearts. And uh, that's filling hearts and supporting people is what Succeed, Nick and his wonderful team uh, are all about. Nick, thank you so much for speaking with me. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity to share some of the stories that parents have shared with us and to, to shout loudly about what matters to families in this space. I've been speaking with Professor Nick Hopwood, a key member of the Supporting Children with Complex Feeding Difficulties team at the University of Technology in Sydney. To learn more about Succeed and to support their work, head to childfeeding.org.
That was so fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.